Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Gaines, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we are going to tell you everything you need to know about the race to lead the World Trade Organization. Roberto Azevedo, the WTO's current Director General, he's stepping down at the end of August. First, we're going to explain what the DG actually does. Then we're going to talk about what people want from the next DG based on a new survey. And finally, we are going to talk about how the winner gets picked. I should also insert here uh, a small warning, um, which is that, you know, we all know that I love the multilateral rules-based trading system, but I, uh, well, I'm feeling pretty cynical right now. That's too bad. We'll, we'll, we'll try to keep the, uh, the, the glass half full. And to help with that, we'll actually be joined by three special guests. My name is Bernard Hochman. I'm a professor at the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy. I'm Annabelle Gonzalez. I'm currently non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And back in 2012, I was the Minister of Trade of Costa Rica, and the government of Costa Rica nominated me as candidate to the position of Director General of the WTO. My name is David Tinline, and I worked for Roberto Azevedo uh, at the WTO um, between 2013 and 2019. So first question is, what does the DG actually do? And and part of the answer is less than some people think. You might remember the meeting between President Donald Trump and, and Roberto Azevedo in Davos in January, when, when the president got the idea that together they were going to work on a new structure for, for the WTO. Roberto and I have a tremendous relationship and we're going to do something that I think will be very dramatic. Uh, He'll be coming with a lot of his representatives to Washington sometime, maybe next week or the week after, and we'll start working on it. Yeah. No. The DG of the WTO can't just come to DC and do a deal with Trump. The, The WTO is driven by what its members want to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that meeting never happened. Yeah. So so someone with a better sense of what the DG does do is David Tenline. He was a senior advisor to, to Azevedo. The, the agreement establishing the, the WTO is very nonspecific about uh, the role of the director general. So day to day, it's a lot of meetings. It's, it's convening meetings of the whole membership, perhaps to discuss, uh, you know, the, the state of play and negotiations or it's it's smaller meetings with with individual uh, ambassadors or groups of ambassadors to try to resolve a particular issue. So that's, uh, you know, an average day in Geneva, maybe, but then it can, you know, equally be sitting around the, the table at the G20 with, with the G20 leaders, trying to make the case for for their engagement on uh, WTO work or in, in capital, speaking to ministers, heads of state, and so on. I think, you know, the nature of the the nature of the job is that you're kind of a, a lightning rod for all the problems at the at the organization. So, you know, you don't have much power yet. Somehow, you carry the expectations of 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 power of the future of the institution, and you're stuck between all of the toughest issues on trade. And some, in some sense, come across your desk, and you're stuck between rock and a hard place. You're stuck between the U.S. and China, between you know Saudi and Qatar, or 
and you you have on one side um, members making demands of you to to take certain action, and then you know they're just as quick to to castigate you if they don't like the kind of action you're you're taking. So it's a it's a it's extremely difficult job in that sense. So it's not just the US president who expects the DG to deliver a bit more than he can. The, the DG looks like he's powerful. He gets to schmooze with world leaders at Davos and the G20, be the face of global trade, super glamorous, great. But when it comes down to it, he really only has soft power. As I said, he cannot force WTO members to do anything they don't want to do. So it is a perennial uh, problem for the WTO or frustration that we have that 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 you know people expect that the WTO can solve the problems that are out there in the in you know in global trade or that the WTO can deliver trade agreements. You know that's it's 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 not the Director General or the WTO Secretariat that has the power to do that. They have the power to help facilitate that to the extent that members, the member governments, want to want to do any of those things. Really, it's in the gift of the of of those governments as to as to what is achieved. Sometimes the member countries can empower the the DG to actually do things. So David recently wrote about how in 2013, there were some tough negotiations and the members asked Acevedo to come up with a compromise that could bridge their gaps. And since he knew where their red lines were, he was able to come up with a text and they were able to work out a deal from there. Yeah, so so great, wonderful, you know, orchestra playing in the background. Um, but in that case, the members asked the DG to do that, right? So if the DG tried to come in and say, hey, guys, looks like you're struggling. Here's the deal I think you should do. Members would, would tell him where to stick it. Uh, you know, depending on what he came up with, it might look like he was picking sides. Um, it, it just would be very, very risky. Uh, Okay, fine. But, you know, it it does matter a bit, at least. The DG can shape the agenda and influence what actually gets discussed in these negotiations. They can also influence how the the operations of the WTO secretariat itself works. And, you know, nobody should forget that the DG can go out and attend 50 or so webinars a week and just talk up how great the multilateral trading system is. Okay, right. So we're going to go with the glass half full version for now, just so that listeners don't switch off. But, you know, my my take is that the main cause of the WTO's problems is not, you know, something wrong with the power of the DG's personality. Okay, fine. But since we get to do this only once every four or eight years or so, could could we actually enjoy it and and, and talk about (laughs) about it and not kill the vibe this time around? Okay, so let's move on and and talk about what the WTO members claim that they actually want out of this race. And so to do this, we're actually lucky enough to have someone who went out and asked them. Bernard Hookman at the European University Institute and a a team of his went out and surveyed the WTO members, uh, a bunch of NGOs that represent labor, environmental groups, academics, and, and business lobbyists to ask them what they thought was important for a DG. Now, Bernard made no claims that their sample was representative, though they, they did obviously ask who people were. And so they split out the answers according to, to sort of categories. So one of the sets of questions they asked was essentially, what is important to you in the next DG? What makes a good DG? And please rank these, these various different attributes. Yeah, so what we find is 
And I should backtrack a little bit. So there's this ongoing kind of tension or debate among people in Geneva. Should the DG be someone who is more of a politician and who has a good political network and who knows people in the major capitals? Uh, or should it be someone who actually understands the nuts and bolts of what goes on? Right. So somebody who really has been in the weeds and who understands what this is all about. And a lot of the questions we were asking kind of get at that indirectly. And what comes out, I think, quite strongly in terms of rank ordering of priorities that people put on different attributes is a pretty strong uh, preference for politics and a political background, having political experience, knowing who's who in the major capitals of the large trading powers, and a bit to my surprise, someone who knows something about economics, right? So the uh, kind of in terms of the background uh, a sense that we need someone who understands economics as well as the WTO business. So altogether, that set of answers might favor the Nigerian candidate, Ngozi Konja Iwela, and she was the former Nigerian finance minister. She's also been the managing director of operations at the World Bank. She's now chair of the board of Gavi, the, the vaccine alliance, and is the African Union's special envoy to mobilize international financial support for the, the fight against COVID-19. And I should say she's also an economist. People responding to the survey didn't seem to care much about whether the next DG was a woman. Uh, and they thought that being from a developed country was even less important. And so I think the context for that was there had been some whispers that the thinking being that because Azevedo was from Brazil and because his predecessor, Pascal Lamy, was from France, that maybe the next DG would, would flip back and go back to being from a developed country. But it turns out the respondents weren't very interested in, in that line of logic. The respondents also valued regional diversity. In particular, the respondents from Africa thought that the next DG should come from somewhere that hadn't supplied a DG before, so from Africa. But, but most of all, respondents seemed to want someone who was competent. And there are a number of other candidates that, that could fit that bill including Kenya's nominee, Amina Mohammed. She's from Africa. She's been a trade minister, and she chaired the WTO ministerial conference in Nairobi back in 2015. But you know, we're not going to pick favorites at this stage. Um, okay, so moving on to, to other questions in the survey, and, and with all of the caveats about how much the DG can actually do, the, the survey asked what people thought that the priorities of the next DG should be. And, you know, as WTO watchers will know, there's a lot of choice. There are multilateral negotiations about fish going on right now. Uh, those are ones between all 164 members. There are also some smaller plurilateral discussions about e-commerce and investment facilitation. Uh, those are just a set of, of members. You have the small matter that the appellate body, uh, which is sort of part of the system of, of solving disputes is, is kind of dead. And just FYI, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic. What gets the highest rank in terms of the, the set of uh, options that we put on the table is to conclude the ongoing plurilateral negotiations. So on e-commerce, on investment facilitation, on domestic regulation of services. So... That is uh, the first order of business for the DG. The second order of business is to monitor what's going on in terms of COVID responses, policy responses, right? And here, 
there was quite a bit of emphasis put on uh, a number of respondents put on monitoring in general, trade policy monitoring. But the COVID side of that is is clearly ranked as something that everybody sees as a priority uh, in the um, immediate future. And if you break that down by region, again, it's what I found interesting is that a lot of the African respondents put a lot of weight on this. Right? And maybe one way to think about why that is the case is because these are countries that are essentially price takers. They don't have a lot of fiscal space to, to subsidize and to do all the things that we're doing in OECD countries. So apparently people in developing regions, in particular in Africa, are worried about what's going on in the rest of the world and what are the implications for them. So that's, that's something that comes out quite strongly. But it's not just Africa-specific. This is something that comes out of the whole sample, all of the respondents are very uh, keen on the WTO doing more and focusing on, okay, so what actually is going on? And let's try and at least understand what countries are doing. I was a bit surprised at the emphasis on plurilaterals because a lot of developing countries are not part of these discussions. Uh, A lot of delegations in Geneva are quite opposed to the whole concept of having plurilateral negotiations on issues. So the fact that, you know, at least as far as our sample is concerned, and again, you, you need to worry about how representative that is. But again, it went to all WTO delegations. It went to quite a, we had quite a response rate from Africa. So the fact that these plurilaterals come out, number one, was, was a bit of a surprise uh, to me. The other thing I would mention in terms of a bit of a surprise or interesting uh, that that we get from the data is we asked two questions about dispute settlement, right? So the big issue here, of course, is that the United States is refusing to allow new members of the appellate body to be uh, selected, right? So we don't have an appellate body anymore. So one question we asked is priority for reconstituting the appellate body, right? Make the appellate body operational again. And that gets really a lot of support from everybody. But we also asked a different question related to dispute settlement, which is framed in terms of reform. How important is it to think about reforming dispute settlements and revisiting the role of an appellate function, right? So implicitly asking, you know, do we need an appellate body? Should we rethink a bit how we do dispute settlement in the WTO? And that gets number two in terms of overall respondents. Right. So you have a lot of support both for bringing the appellate body back and a lot of support for thinking about dispute settlement reform. And I think that's partly because a lot of the respondents probably didn't really make the difference. Right. So for them, this is all dispute settlement. We need to fix it. But what is interesting in terms of rankings is that the Geneva delegations put dispute settlement reform pretty much towards the end of their list of priorities. So number seven out of nine. So the Geneva delegations put most weight on bring back the appellate body. But then if you look at what governments were saying in capitals and other groups, other respondent groups, they're much more supportive of let's actually think about dispute settlement reform. So my takeaway from that, and again, we can't really base this on the data per se, but for the DG would be, you know, you have a bit of a job to get people in Geneva to think a bit out of the box when it comes to dispute settlement and not be completely focused on making the appellate body operational again. Yeah, uh, some real, you know, joined up government um, going on right there. Um, okay, so so in summary, 
members want the DG to do nice things and, and fix the world trading system. And as we've discussed, the power to do that will be limited by the fact that members disagree on how to do it. We asked Bernard if the candidate's policy priorities really mattered to who gets chosen. No. No, because I think we need to, we need to bear in mind that the WTO is member-driven, right? So ultimately, it's going to be a political, you know, log-rolling game, etc. So I had to Google this, uh, but in this context, log-rolling is basically trading political favors. So let's talk about the log-rolling. Uh, and, and how exactly this process of picking the winner is going to work. And I think one thing for, for people to understand is this process is actually pretty transparent, right? So it's a much more open system than, let's say, who gets appointed to the World Bank or to the IMF, which is much more of a black box and where, you know, deals are struck in hotel rooms and on telephone calls. But, you know, there isn't a whole lot of going out and campaigning. Right. So there was a little bit of that with the World Bank in, in recent years. But the WTO is actually much more formal. You know, you, you throw your hat into the ring, you get nominated by your government and then you go out and campaign and then you're interviewed and then they they select. As things stand now, we have eight candidates nominated by Nigeria, Kenya, South Korea, Mexico, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Moldova and the UK. And so, you know, a range of emerging markets here, definitely not a given for the EU or the US. The fact that there isn't an American or, say, a Chinese candidate um, isn't a surprise um, because, of course, picking the next DG at the WTO means that everyone has to agree, so all 164 members. And and you know that the Americans are going to veto a Chinese candidate. And to be honest, I really don't think there's much appetite among the membership right now for a candidate that is uh, nominated by the, the Trump administration. Though, for the record, Chad would have been available. <laughs> right. So, so we've got the nominations, and right now we have moved into the campaigning period. And that's going to last until September 7th. And so, yes, you'll be reading op-eds about the WTO until then at least. And so the way this works is basically the candidates have to, to reach out to the entire WTO membership and, and make themselves known at this stage. Now, my colleague, Annabelle Gonzalez, went through this process when she ran against Azevedo and seven other candidates for the DG Post back in 2013. We asked her what it was like. It was it was very much a speed dating because it was a limited, you know, limited number of weeks that you had and you had to reach out uh, to a lot of people. So, uh, so, you know, I remember that there were reports that in, in our case, one of the candidates that had the plane at the government plane at his uh, uh, disposal could visit three African countries in one day. Like if you were in East Africa, for example, you could you could go, you know, from Kenya to Tanzania to Uganda in, if you have your own plane. If you have to go commercial, then it's much more challenging because, you know, sometimes it could mean going to London to connect to or Paris and connect to the other countries. So, yeah, it was a bit like um, like speed dating. Then, of course, you need to listen very carefully to what the um, country's priorities are. And uh, I think there is one priority that comes across 
most countries, I would say, though it varies a bit, which is, you know, the director general should be an honest broker. And you will you will hear this uh, phrase, you know, over and over and over again in this uh, in this process. And that is because it is true that that is very much the nature of, um, of, of the role of the director general. After the campaigning process, there are consultations. And basically, there are meetings convened. So one person, the chair of this process, consults with members and asks who they like, but more importantly, who they don't like. Well, one thing that when you're running uh, as a candidate, one thing that you want to make sure is that you do not upset any, any, any one of the members. And I think that, you know, normally, I guess, good politics in, in, every, uh, in every race. But in the context of very strong trade confrontations that we live in today, that may become even more relevant because the, I guess the challenge here is that a candidate wants to avoid being blocked by any one of the members. Um, because the way in which the process works, you require, you know, different governments to support you, but you also want to make sure that no one blocks you. Because if they block you, then you will not be able to make it. Unlike other campaigns, I, I think what's really clear here is if you want to be the next DG, you just really can't annoy anyone. And unfortunately, that means that what the candidates say, in public at least, is mostly very, very boring. Yeah, basically they have to promise to champion the multilateral trading system, to fix the dispute settlement arm, to fix the negotiating arm, to listen to the members, and also make sure that everyone gets free hugs. Um, though, of course, you know, when, when they come on trade talks, we're going to make sure that they talk about very, very interesting things. Yeah, and it's not as if those things are boring. It's just that we want to know how they're going to fix those things. And unfortunately, this process is just not designed for them to have to reveal any of those those certain things. Now, obviously, as well as not annoying anyone, you also do need to get broad support. And that means winning over Europe because each country in, in Europe gets one vote and there's a lot of countries there, as well as Africa, where there's also a lot of countries. Looking back at 2013, we asked Annabelle about what Acevedo's strategy was, and she said that he basically ditched all of the, the kind of public events organized by, by think tanks where you're supposed to talk about stuff, and he spent a lot of time traveling around Africa, going to all of these capitals instead. And, you know, given he won, clearly it, it paid off. Um so in this process, there is there is a certain amount of you know block voting or sort of geostrategic voting. African countries are probably not going to support the South Korean candidate over any of the three African candidates. I guess this time there is a question about whether the three African candidates are going to be at a disadvantage because there are so many. Because you know you might split the vote. Maybe there are a, a lot of politics involved here. The, the log rolling that Bernard was talking about, that can happen across different international institutions as well. And so one government might say, hey, I'll let you have your person for this position uh, at, at this institution, maybe the WTO, if you let my person have the, the head of another institution, maybe, say, the OECD. There's another layer of politics that relates to the deputy director generals. So as, as well as the DG, there are four deputies. And there's this kind of unwritten rule that there is some sort of regional balance. So, so for example, it would be very difficult to have an American DG and a, and a Canadian DDG. 
And so for the deputies right now, at the moment, there's a Chinese, a German, an American, and a Nigerian. And it's, it's very possible that, you know, the Chinese government might say block the South Korean candidate this time because they want to retain a DDG spot. I think the answer to all of this might be if we just had more uh, dual citizenship people. I think that that might solve this problem. We asked Annabelle what surprised her most about the process of picking a winner. I guess what surprised me most was the level of involvement I, at some point, uh, that presidents had in the in the process. Um, I knew that this was an, an important position. Uh, the WTO is an important organization. But nevertheless, I thought it was going to be a process uh, mostly guided by by ministers. But at the end of the day, the involvement at a very high level, uh, I think, also plays uh, an important role. So this is why I'm I'm so cynical about all of this. I mean, it sounds open and, you know, great. The process does seem better than in other international institutions. But this isn't really a, a contest of ideas. Uh, it, it is going to get decided based on this, this process of, of log rolling. I, I personally think this is an exciting process. Look, the last time that, that we did this, there was even some spying involved. After the contest was decided back in 2013, there was the, a whole WikiLeaks, Edward Snowden kind of scandal where the New Zealand government was, was basically accused of surveilling the other candidates. They had, they had their candidate in the mix and they were spying on all the rest of them. Yeah. Okay, chat. So I know that you're really excited about the sort of scandal that happened um, this time. So so let's hear from Annabelle when we asked her about all the, the juicy information that the, the Kiwis were trying to steal. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I don't think the information could have been particularly helpful, uh, you know, because the strategy was mostly sort of identifying what city you were going to visit next. And it was, you know, the whole planning for three months or which events you were going to attend or, you know, whatever you may have been writing. But, you know, at the end of the day, all of that was public. So I'm not sure. Uh, about that. And if it, if it was a matter of finding out who was going to support you, well, the supports normally came in privately, you know, uh, and they were not going to be there on, on your email or on your phone. Uh, so I, I'm not sure that a surveillance uh, strategy is particularly effective in a process like this. Well, I found it exciting anyway. Right. Um, so, so before we go, we should say a little bit more about the candidates. Um, we've already mentioned Kenya's Amina Mohammed and Nigeria's Ngozi Okonjo Oiwela. So, according to to Ladbrokes, you know there, there are clearly very deep betting markets here. Those two are two of the front runners. Then we have Abdel Hamid Mamdou, uh, uh, an Egyptian technocrat who who definitely knows his trade. And then there's Yu Myung-hee, uh, the South Korean trade minister, who's very well regarded as well, but faces some challenges getting the support of, of course, China and Japan from her region. There is Jesus Seade from Mexico. He is the only candidate to have already been featured on Trade Talks. He closed the USMCA, and reportedly there is a bumper sticker in the works saying only Jesus can save the WTO. I think that joke is one of those ones that, that only works uh, written down. 
Okay, next we have Tudor Ulyanovsky from Moldova. I had not heard of him before this process started, but Alan Beatty at the FT was impressed by his performance. So I'd say he's, you know, almost certainly going to win. Alan has great control over these matters. And then finally, we have Liam Fox from the UK. Okay, um... So a note to end on, um, which is that it is possible that this process could drag on for a really long time. In theory, the, the, the sort of guidelines say that they want a candidate by November at the latest. But if they can't agree, if the Americans block everyone or someone else blocks everyone, then it could stretch for even longer. If it goes on for years, actually, maybe maybe even I won't won't enjoy it anymore. Okay, I think that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to David Tinline, Bernard Hookman at the European University Institute, and Annabelle Gonzalez at the Peterson Institute for sharing their expertise on WTO Directors General. Thank you to Colin Warren, our audio guy. And do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're at, at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to campaigns going on at the moment, two is better than one. Wait, are you referring to the U.S. presidential race? Yeah, I think I'd rather actually be following the the WTO one than what's going on here in America right now. I, yeah, (laughs) I have nothing to say to that. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on, I had one other joke that I wanted to insert here somewhere that I, I didn't get to. Okay, I'm under a blanket and the air conditioning's all off. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right.